the very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is Welcome to this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce our guest, we want to mention we've got a Patreon account, www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider dropping us a buck a month there, or if not, leave us an awesome review on iTunes. Either way, we appreciate you. Today, Taylor and I will be having John Rapetti join us to discuss Deleuze's Francis Bacon, The Logic of Sensation. Very hearty welcome to the show for John. We will usually like to start out uh, with guests with a kind of simple question. If there's kind of like a singular moment or experience or thinker or something that sort of, I guess, got the intensive process of a philosophy and theory, you know, traversing your body like a like some sort of tsunami, you could tell us about that. With that preface, it's going to be a weird, right. going to sound like a weird <laughs> story um, than it is. Um, I got into philosophy because I wanted to be a writer. And I have wanted to be a writer since before I could read, since before I could <laughs> spell. When I was a kid, like two and a half years old, before I knew any words, I would get these ruled notebooks and just scribble between the lines and pretend I was right. It's almost like a graphomania type thing. And I sort of just always assumed at some point that that would happen for me, that this would be where my life would go. And so I went to college and went in as a writing major. And, you know, I took one workshop and my stories were terrible. Everybody else's stories were somehow even worse. And it was really discouraging because you would just be sitting there and like not able to make language do what you want it to do. And that winter, like dead of winter, it was four feet of snow outside the dorm. I read um, Anna Karenina in like a week. And that was like both totally life affirming and totally shattering because it was like, oh God, you know, Tolstoy's done it. <laughs> Why should I bother? You know, and so I decided, okay, like I got to, if I ever do want to write, which might happen one day, I need to read and I need to know things and I need to like right. get there. And so I, transferred into just English. And I went to an English department that was really philosophy heavy, that was really into literature as intellectual history of the novel or the poem as a kind of demonstration of philosophical problems or social problems. And where I was pushed really to read, you know, to read more philosophy, to think about writers with philosophy, like, you know, Emily Dickinson and Kant, Melville and Hegel, you know, like mm -hmm. those sort of like those classic kind of undergrad pairings. And I just, I, loved the other side of it so much that I got stuck there and eventually I went to grad school and I met um do you guys know Russ Leo? He's, I don't think uh, so. He just got tenure at Princeton. Um he's a fan of the show. He like I mentioned you guys Oh him. shit. Okay. Yeah, I love that show. But he's a scholar of Spinoza and a historian of anti-psychiatry. 
Oh, wow. We'll He's writing to... a book right now about Guattari, about Laborde, okay. about like the history of anti-psychiatry in France and America. You'll have to, you'll have to liaison us. <laughs> dude, he would love to. The, the, you said his name's Russ off, Leo? Dude. Russ Leo. L -E okay, awesome. Awesome. Go on, go on though. Sorry. Yeah, but like, but, so I kind of fell under his, I took the Spinoza course with him and really fell under mm -hmm. wing. And we read the first half of the courses, you read the ethics, like right. by book, sentence by sentence, axiom by axiom. And the second half was all about like Spinoza in the 21st century. So awesome there, Negri, Federici, all this. And I just kind of, and that's the obvious kind of, from there, Deleuze and yeah, Guattari. I mean, and from there, basically everything, like all of, you know, all my psychoanalysis, anything I'm obsessed with now is where I am. Yeah, I mean, that class. Spinoza, Spinoza as not just the 20th century, but we talk about post-Kantians, but you could say like the post-Spinozist, there's also like a post-Cartesian bent, obviously through Spinoza as well, but there's a whole map of thinkers from Spinoza, but in the 20th century, it's particularly, I mean, there's still works that are, I mean, I've talked to you about Matheron's book that's like 800 pages, you know, what yeah. is it? the individual and community in Spinoza or some shit. And then there's, um, you know, one of Deleuze's teachers, there's the rules, unfinished books on the ethics. I mean, I assume that what Deleuze's interest in Spinoza, is that how you latched on then to becoming interested in his work? Yeah, like just the, I realized that everything I loved in Spinoza gets expression in Deleuze, like sort of my Spinoza. I realized that my Spinoza is, in so many ways, Deleuze Spinoza for however many reasons, which is interesting because usually it's the other way around. Usually, get into Deleuze first and then Spinoza. But I, I felt like a kinship there, and a sort of like a, and a kinship of energy, like a kinship of writing. You know, like the way that he wrote, the way that he kind of tried to turn criticism into a form of flight and yeah. do a kind of like movement across a territory as opposed to a burrowing into you know, let's get to the philosophical heart of this. Let's get to the meaningful kernel inside, like the way that right. Deleuze, in this book especially, kind of just passes over the surfaces of the paintings and coordinates them and coagulates them. That's a good point. It's interesting because Deleuze's two books on Spinoza are, are kind of, they're kind of strange in terms of like practical philosophy as one of the quote unquote monographs. It's written in, a, in, a, in an interesting style mm. right because it's broken up by a kind of glossary and doesn't feel as particularly coordinated almost more for like again kind of like Badu's ethics for undergraduates or for a, a more lay audience it's almost like notes towards a book right or and it's then, almost like an appendix <clears throat> to a book right or wrote yeah and then obviously the expressionism book the problem of expression being a secondary dissertation it's much more hardcore than the monographs so it stands alone it's beefier but then you have all the seminars on spinoza that are just fantastic and uh speaking of the translator of this work you know dan smith's involved with charles Duvall at purdue and, and yeah. getting all of that stuff collected for us so that makes sense that trajectory and um i guess we wanted to start with maybe outlining a few things before getting into the book. I mean, I mentioned offhand that sometimes there are aspects of Deleuze's work that get less attention. A Thousand Plateaus maybe sucks up so much attention from this era, right, 1980, versus what this is published in 81. Yeah. 
So a lot of times, you know, it can be easy to get stuck on some of the early monographs, different repetition, logic of sense, anti-Oedipus, a thousand plateaus. Some of the, the later work can get less attention. And so this one kind of falls in between the later monographs and obviously what is philosophy. And it's kind of, it's also interesting because it's, it's kind of like the Proust book, right? It's a book on an artist rather than on a philosopher, which is more typical of the monographs. Although I guess the, um, the soccer Masok book is potentially another figure we could throw in, which mm -hmm. we talked about yesterday. My version of the, of the book, which I got maybe just was not scanned correctly, but I didn't get to read, um, Dan Smith, the translator, uh, his, his like little preface, but you had some interesting anecdotal stuff about Deleuze meeting with uh, Bacon. I thought we could start with that and then maybe talk about where this this work kind of fits in and then get into the work proper. So we'll just ease in just for, I guess, obviously for my own education since I missed this part, but also I think it's good to situate this work for the audience, again, who may or may not be more or less familiar with this, uh, this work on, on Bacon. This book comes out in 1981. It's published in two volumes. One is the maybe 140 pages of the text, and the other is the you know pretty high quality images of the Bacon painting and the paintings that Deleuze names to try to explicate Bacon. So Cezanne, El Greco, et cetera, et cetera. He seems to have written it like very quickly immediately after or just as he was really wrapping up the work on a thousand plateaus there's questions about whether or not he might have actually owned some of bacon's paintings yeah tom conley in the afterwards suggests that maybe we don't know for sure but he could have at the time had some of them in his study and been working with them over the course of writing atp actually but he seems to have met bacon one time that we know of that the biographer knows of and it was not a great encounter like mm. shows up at Bacon's studio or, or Bacon shows up at his apartment and Deleuze is surrounded by a chorus of like admirers of his students of his like hangers on and this is the period where he's really attracting a lot of them it's when he's in slightly yeah. better health than he is later it's when he's kind of risen as the intellectual of 68 and Bacon is kind of turned off by this he thinks it's all like really french and really kind of <laughs> you know like i mean but bacon is like the bon vivant of english artists and he's and bacon doesn't love it and he likes to be the center of attention too and so there's uh, yeah, kind of right. a power struggle between these two men almost that leads to a somewhat cold friendship but they but we know that bacon read the book that bacon liked the book that he was flattered by it and that he at least didn't reject Deleuze's points you think a lot about like the quote from that late interview about buggery i read these books and i give these philosophers bastard children what's somewhat unique about the bacon book is that it seems that bacon would have recognized this child in fact does recognize this child which might be partially an effect of just of Deleuze writing about a living a living artist a living figure which i think is interesting like the way that he positions vis-a-vis -vis his subject or his object in this feels to me somewhat unique but yeah i mean that's interesting just to to get the uh the stamp of approval from the thinker you're you're writing about that would be something uh that's something unique to add 
you know, it's interesting, right, that you mentioned the the second volume that has all the prints because I tried to look for this and I couldn't find it because it would have helped, I think, mm -hmm. in reading the book. You know, the French edition does it differently. I think I told you this, the way that the French text outlines it instead of internal brackets numbered like in the english it's on the outside kind of like the uh, conclusion to a thousand plateaus when they're citing internally so to speak they're referring back to earlier plateaus it's almost like the same type of formatting i don't remember who published is it Manui that published uh meal plateau because it was it was it was sewell that did um the logic of sensation so it could be different publishers but i think it's obvious that Deleuze liked this formatting of it's a of very having, having the numbers on the outside of the of the of the text as a means of reference it's a very like medieval apparatus like mm -hmm. i'm pretty sure that like medieval texts you know with the like index like which is the finger pointing to the page number like that's a very which is very much of Deleuze of this period too i wouldn't be surprised if it's some kind of you see this in like uh i i mean i i have a number of of different bible versions but you see this in like uh king james new international version where it'll be it'll be kind of pointing to another as you said indexing another passage in the bible internally right so it's got its own kind of codification system so yeah it's just interesting to think that having that secondary volume easy to you know because it's ordered in this way where you're reading the text and it's like it's like 27 63 and you're like what the fuck so you have to you have to look yeah. at the end of the text to see how they're numbered sometimes the lose will name them and so you can like google them but it's you can do it you can pull up all the tech all the the paintings if you really take your time but you're going to double or triple the amount of time spent with the text so having just an easy reference to look at the numbers would have been something absolutely fantastic but obviously for rights reasons for the price of the of publication you know we can imagine various factors going in not including all of those paintings which he they number what to like 100 and more than 100 when he was writing the book Deleuze he really only had access to the prints themselves like I'm, he had seen some of bacon's paintings at exhibitions but he had a book of the prince he had a book of interviews with bacon from the mid-70s called the brutality of fact and okay, that's yeah. where a lot of his quotations of bacon come from and he had like two books that had been written about bacon that are just very much in the background that i think he only cites like one or two times each. right he mentions them offhand yeah and he seems to really have just gone for it like he really just dove in wrote these chapters like in a sitting or in an afternoon and they have that feeling of him kind of running over the terrain crisscrossing it looking back from the hill right you know they have that sort of well it's, it's kind of like the method of a thousand plateaus where any yeah. plateau is kind of it's written from the middle right so the so any any sort of line or any sort of theoretical point could feel at home in another plateau where it's something similar even if the chapters are arranged somewhat logically as you said there is a kind of you know interspersal of uh of the lines that they could fit in in other chapters there's a crisscrossing i think that that was the word you use which i like 
And it reminds me a little bit of one thing, and I'm not trying to delve yet. I guess we can start delving into the content, so to speak, proper of the of the work. There's this play that Deleuze makes between hysteresis, which is a concept that is completely separate from hysteria, but Deleuze collapses the two mm -hmm. words. And I was looking through the etymology, hysteresis is from the Greek hysteros, which means later, versus hysteria, which is from the Greek hystera or hustera, if you want to pronounce it, whatever, for womb. But mm. Deleuze collapses the two because he'll go into, and we, we, can, we can talk about the hysteria of painting. Uh, that, that's something that's very interesting. We can get to that. But I just wanted to point out that this is, Deleuze makes it about, because hysteresis, the way I always think about it is there's a kind of a lag or a delay of, a, of an output value in relation yeah. to an input. So you think of a thermostat, if it's trying to keep, you know, the temperature at 72, if the temperature drops, it'll turn the heat on. If it goes above 72, it'll turn the heat off. So there's this like out, there's this like delay and lag. And Deleuze rightly relates it to the opera coup, the, the noctragrikite, right? That Freud always talks about the after fact, this, this sort of interplay between a before and an after, which we sort of talked about yeah. beforehand yeah. about the uh, like the blank page yeah um already being virtually and see this is interesting this is where the yeah. painter and the writer like the egg almost too yeah well, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. hysteria chapter i thought right. that was good and i'm glad you brought up necrotroglycite because that's exactly what i was thinking too another important biographical thing is that often in bacon's life his triptychs were separated you mean as in they were they were displayed not as no, a as they a were displayed as a triptych Okay. But then sold to three different people. Oh man! Okay, you, isn't that wild? And still, some of them are owned by different people, and so they have to museums have to make deals with each of the various. Oh geez. To like display them. <laughs> the Lucian Freud triptych was separate. Right. Like and there's there's two of those, right? There's two Lucian Freud triptychs, right? I believe so. Yeah, but one of at least one of them. I think the famous one that sold for like 150 million ten years ago. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I saw that. That that was it. Broke it's incredible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But like was sold to and he was Bacon was bothered by this, like, you know, but he had a deal with his art distributor. He was bothered time. by by breaking up the triptychs Is by breaking them up. Yeah, oh, of he, course. He, of course. Yeah. Because originally <laughs> he started doing them seemingly as a practical measure. Like he did these series basically because he had a deal with his distributor to do a certain number of paintings per year for what was effectively a salary right they would sell them to other people and so he would hang out for 10 months of the year and then do all of his painting in a rush in the last two months so he could get his money for the next year right so it started out as a kind of often as a kind of a serial pragmatic decision and then later on and later on and later on it became totally integral to the work i mean there's also like the very early major masterpiece from 44 like three figures at the foot of the crucifixion which was a triptych in the beginning it was meant to be a triptych and was never supposed to be separated that was one of the first pieces that like got him renowned yeah right? the one that's like the wailing goose like it's like three sort of weird bird-like figures yeah that one but for the most part it was you know they were separated but we're talking about not traglokite, like this is totally each individual. There's so 
much less interesting individually. They need to be together. You look at the Lucian Freud paintings and what's so mysteriously effective about them is the adjacency and the way that he balances balances them together in ways that are not narrative and not even spatial necessarily. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, despite what Deleuze says about the fact that each individual painting itself has this aspect of the triptych, right? Where mm -hmm. it's this unity and multiplicity shit. Mm -hmm. It's I think you're right. There's at least for the uninitiated like myself, I do think that having the triptych, there's something there, despite what Deleuze claims to the contrary, that each each individual thing has this this triplicity. I don't know if I, I necessarily buy it, but I at least conceptually in this philosophical way of of moving from let's say the, the 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 unitary figure with its vibration the the duplicity the duad with mm -hmm. its uh resonance and then the the triptych then having a kind of forced movement blah 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 and that and that of course you can find the multiplicity in the one but i don't know i think that you're right there's something there's some sort of violation of artistic mm -hmm. authority if you will um but death of the author whatever the fuck you know that's that's interesting about the triptychs i didn't know that and i know lucian freud was like an artist contemporary artist with him and it was one of his friends and they may have uh you know had a falling out due to an argument but it did seem like that a lot of the triptychs are of his are of acquaintances friends. and friends i think starting in the in the 60s and 70s he starts painting more and more of his friends, of his lover, George Dyer, who is a um, sort of a Genet type figure. He's a bacon meets when he's in his late 20s and he's a criminal, like a street, a street kid, really. He's a bad boy. Which is what Bacon really was. And Bacon is in. But he was like a gambler and shit, right? Before he became a painter. He, he was a gambler, an interior decorator. He was a vagabond. Yeah, but he was also in, um, you know, he is related to the other Francis Bacon. I assumed. The, that, that, yeah, that's great. Which, is, which you can only imagine how much Deleuze loved that, right? Like the father of empiricism and the great empirical painter. Right. <laughs> like, but he. Even Deleuze never really talks about the OG never. Bacon. It's yeah. completely absent. Yeah. Right. And, and maybe that's, I don't know what that is, but like he. Bacon has a tough relationship with his own father. There's a, mm, a, a yep. maybe a, and a story from Bacon himself, who's a known liar, that you know he was kicked out of the estate, out of the house because he's his father saw him wearing his mother's underwear. I mean, and who knows? Like he also claims to have you know come on to his father and been attracted to his father. Like mm. he, he has a whole sort of mythology of perversion around himself. But we do know that he basically lived in lived in london paris dublin various cities like on three pounds a week oh wow yeah um and met older men who supported him you know was mm, a yeah and that's how he lived until his father died when his father died he came into the inheritance then he kept found his own kept man gotcha, who being gotcha. george dyer and they stayed together for years dyer was a bottle a day alcoholic and like not a bottle of wine you know yeah. and it, he it, takes, it takes a lot of skill and dyer dies in a hotel while bacon is 
in one of Bacon's like real coming out success shows in the 70s. And he comes back from the show and comes back from the dinner and stuff and his lover's dead. And that kind of leads him to retreat from society, from these other people and to do more of these sort of hermetic paintings of his friends. It's, yeah, I mean, it's wild. The mythologizing that he did about himself that one of his friends would be the grandson of, of Sigmund Freud, right? So there's, <laughs> there, there, there is this interesting little... Um, and this is why I brought up the hysteria, which is in the middle of the book. It's mm -hmm. chapter seven, where we get a beautiful description of the body without organs, which we obviously will want to go to. I know that's one of Coop's favorite concepts. And um, he redeploys those famous lines from Artaud, which he does in Logic of Sense in 69, you know, to where, where we first see Deleuze playing with this notion, even if he doesn't explore it as deeply as he does here we get some some interesting conceptual apparatuses to play with. But in any case, I, I just was thinking about this notion of hysteria in the paintings. And it actually, despite the, the collapse of hysteresis and hysteria, which I find interesting, I, I do think that the basic understanding of hysteria, again, from, from Freud, Charcot, the 19th century, mm -hmm. even if Obviously, the notion of hysteria has a much longer history, thousands of years. But this notion of what Freud talks about in terms of conversion as being the main or one of the main, along with amnesias and other things, but conversion being one of the main elements of hysteria, right? That the psychopathic symptoms display visibly in the body. That helped me to understand what Deleuze was trying to do with arguing that there is whether or not we talk about it in terms of force movement, which is, I know, localized in the, the triptych, but the spasming of, of the body, the invisible forces that affect the body in Bacon's work, bringing out what he calls the spasm or the, or the scream or the plex, what is it, the plexus, right? So like, yeah. we can visibly see the body under duress. And that yeah. is one of the elements of of what Deleuze is calling hysteria and painting these these invisible forces that are affecting affecting bodies, which you know is linked to sensation, linked to the direct nervous impact, and it's not cerebral. It doesn't go through the faculty of the understanding or whatnot, right? No. I know I'm throwing a lot of stuff out here just to we can dive in wherever we feel like. Yeah, I, I think one key thing about the hysteria chapter is that it's also a kind of a repost to Lacan. Um, oh, interesting. It's like when Lacan says, like for Lacan, the symptom speaks this or the symptom is the body speaking or signifying. Right. And for Deleuze, the symptom is almost like an inversion of that or a copula. It's it's um, speech bodying. Yeah. Right. OK. Yeah. Like it's something it's. Because it's not it's not it's not located in a signifier. Exactly. For, for right. it's like it's the body sort of like erupt, <clears throat> erupting in something that is not speech or like escaping the code. It's if that makes sense, not the code coming out of not the code using the body as a sort of a medium communication right. system. Yeah. And no, that's I like that. I like that to him. Yeah. I might read this little section um, just to fill you in, John, a little bit background. So what was yeah. it two weeks ago that you were here visiting Taylor? Something like that. So we went to a Sun O concert 
Oh yeah, I was vis- I was visiting. Oh, uh, oh when uh, Taylor was visiting, yeah. he was yeah. visiting <laughs> me. Yeah, he was visiting okay. me in Austin. We went to a Sun O concert. I provided Taylor with uh with headphones. I'm like, you know, you this is a show that you absolutely must wear headphones yeah. <laughs> or uh, not headphones, earplugs rather. Yeah, just to protect your hearing. And I think there's an interesting like at the time I felt like there was some kind of a signifying aspect to the music and the way that it. So there's that, which I think goes to a little bit of what he discusses with Bacon and sort of the, I guess, like the canvas is the body without organs to some, or like an egg or something like that to some extent. Form takes precedence over representation or or something like that. Mm -hmm. I'm being very... Deformation, deformation. Deformation. Yeah, I'm being being very quick and dirty with my... uh, Go ahead. Description here, but I, for one thing, just like anecdotally, it was funny because Taylor said he didn't wear his earplugs, and I'm like looking over, and he's like, he's nodding off, <laughs> and I've got my earplugs in, and I'm like worrying that I'm gonna lose my hearing even with earplugs in. I like, had a hoodie on, and I threw it over my head as well, just because I felt like the assault was so yeah. intense. But I think that there's something shared in this notion or he talked the way that Deleuze talks about music maybe i'll just read this and then we can kind of recapitulate but in the end why should all this be particular to painting can we speak of a hysterical essence of painting under the rubric of a purely aesthetic clinic independent of any psychiatry and psychoanalysis why could not music also extricate pure presences but through an ear that has become the polyvalent organ for sonorous bodies and why not poetry or theater when it is those of Artaud or Beckett. This problem concerning the essence of each art and possibly their clinical essence is less difficult than it seems to be. Certainly music traverses our bodies in profound ways, putting an ear in the stomach and the lungs and so on. It knows all about waves and nervousness, but it involves our body and bodies in general in another element. It strips bodies of their inertia, of the materiality and of their presence, it disembodies bodies. We can thus speak with exactitude of a sonorous body and even of a bodily combat in music, for example, in a motif. But as Proust said, it is an immaterial and disembodied combat in which there are subsists not one scrap of inert matter refractory to the mind. In a sense, music begins where painting ends, and this is what is meant when one speaks of the superiority of music. It is lodged on lines of flight that pass through bodies, but which find their consistency elsewhere, whereas painting is lodged farther up where the body escapes from itself. God, that's so good. Yeah. (laughs) No, I was thinking when you said Sono, I knew exactly where you were going because like that pulse, Mm. right? Like the pulse of the bass and the varying layers of pulse that you feel in your body when it happens, like an ear in the stomach is exactly what Sono sounds like to me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. In, in the in the rib cage too, right? Yeah. I mean, like yeah. in the it does turn to go to a motif that hmm. Liz brings up. It turns the bones into flesh, right? Yeah. Because you 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 feel your your diaphragm, your skeletal structure vibrating. It puts an ear throughout. It sort of um, the structure of the bones melts back into the field of the of the body, so to speak. Right. And not just that, but that like the resonances themselves have sub resonances. When you're down in those really low registers that they play in, there's the tempo of the song itself. There's this sort of like 
there's the throb of different frequencies kind of finding each other and separating, getting closer and separating. Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't know the musical theory term for this, but it's this sort of like, but those frequencies, those sort of those varying frequencies that come together and separate, those are motifs, I think, in a classic sense, right? Right. In the sense that um, Deleuze is using, because it's order emerging out of the chaos itself. The noise itself is is producing its own resonances that are not intended by the guitarist or by, you know, in the same way that like pollicle right, yeah. paint and there will be there will be concentrations of color in certain parts of the canvas that he did not intend to, but that end up there and that he then has to do the work of deciding, okay, are we going to keep this concentration of yellow in the upper left or are we going to try to balance it out with the bottom right, et cetera? It's beyond and beneath all melody, all harmony. It's a sub-representative domain yeah, of, yeah, yeah. Of, of vibrations and, and resonances, force movements, whatever. They don't coalesce in a kind of melody or yeah, it has nothing to do with melody. That's what's yeah. so, and that's, what's embodied about it. Right. Like yeah. it has, that it's all about it's in time and it's in a, it's in the sort of slow vibration of time. Yeah. Oh, that's it's, good. It's the dune shit uh, coop. It's the move. It's the move without rhythm. There oh, is, yeah. Yeah. There, there is no, there is the walk without rhythm. There is no, like the rhythm is completely spontaneous or if you will, it's, um, it's it's non it doesn't resemble any natural rhythm it's like or, pure difference or something i don't know yeah Maybe i mean it's too continuous <laughs> con, no it's continuous variation so so yeah i guess that that's the the thing where um it is interesting right that the next chapter begins with after deleuze demarcates music and painting he then like collapses and, and says there's like a common combat to to all art right which how does he how does he say it oh shit now now i since i brought it up <laughs> while you're looking for that i'll just talk a little bit about how i felt it was kind of cool that the way that i think the suno experience really displaces and turns the whole the body becomes the ear mm-hmm. and the ear is actually like you you have to disintensify like what you would sort of presumably like the function of the ear is to take in sound but here it's almost like you have to mitigate the intensive experience that is i guess right this kind of transcendental idea of what the ear's function is supposed to be and it displaces that throughout the body deleuze even talks about in this chapter the way that the i guess sense maybe is the word that he uses that kind of describes the way that the it kind of flows over as this sort of wave form over the body so just the connections that it, I hits, it hits the nervous system and not the brain, right? right? right. Like yeah, this, yeah, yeah. Like it's this immediate like encounter with, as opposed to like the Cartesian picture of sight, where like the light hits the eye and then right. there's a yeah, projection yeah, yeah. in the back of the brain. What you get in a Bacon painting, for example, is a kind of immediate experience. The textures and the com and the the traits and you can't really get this in the reproductions but like you see a bacon painting in person it's so heavy and textured and rough that you can almost feel it tactilely before you know what you're looking at like he's short-circuiting your sensory apparatus in a way there's definitely an a signifying component i think to tie the hysteria chapter to maybe the first chapter in the way that the face is deterritorialized in bacon's paintings too to where 
it's almost it's kind of the same sort of relationship with the music, right? Because the body becomes the ear, the ear itself sort of dissolves or like constructs this whatever body, or I don't I don't know how to really tie that mm-hmm. together, perhaps, but the way that he displaces the face into the head, so to speak. I think maybe there's some mm-hmm. type of connection there. Yeah, because the face is the a part of the system for signifying the organization right? of the organs or something like that. Well, it's know. yeah, it's the organization of the of the signifying surface. Mm-hmm. And out very of good. which very good. You know, it's the it's the why this is a thousand plateau stuff, which he he's kind of playing with when he talks about yeah. faciality in these early Absolutely. chapters, but it's you know, the white wall of the face is the wall off which the signifier bounces and the black hole is the swirling source from which consciousness arises to like to fill out a signifying yeah. aspect and, so, and how that relates to the blank canvas the sort of potential of the blank canvas as this kind of body without organs or something well it's it's already well i think that it's interesting that it's already for deleuze and this is where the painter and the writer have affinity right the blank page on the screen or, or the blank page in one's hand versus the blank canvas you know Deleuze is saying it's already swarming virtually with these cliches that we're already in the page right, yeah. we're already in the canvas and and we have to get out of it that's that's yeah. the artist's goal is to get out just out of representation right. specifically right that's what he says the, in the first chapter which is why the face has to be deformed and the head turns into a scream right out of which the body is trying to like exit itself from one of its organs and i think that this goes back to what i was trying to say about the common problem of all art that Deleuze immediately collapses the distinction between the arts by saying that it's a, not about representing as we've been saying it's not about narrating illustrating figuring it's about capturing forces. And so I think that all of this kind of goes back to this question of capturing forces, kind of like, you know, when Proust talks about a little bit of time in the pure state, it's like a little bit of a force in the pure state without, as John was saying, going through the brain, which I, I know you brought up Descartes, but I always was thinking about the way that Deleuze complicates Kant or sees in Kant's third critique, the complication of the harmonious accord of the faculties where the brain would be delegating to one of its faculties the means of of harmonizing you know reason understanding whatnot and so that's the cerebral apparatus which mm-hmm. would impose a sort of organization kind of like when Deleuze says the body of the organs is not against the organs it's against the organizational form it's, it's against the organism as determining the organs in a certain specific function, just like the, the kind of Kantian cerebral apparatus would be coordinating through the faculties and already imposing those forms, those categories, if you will, yeah. in order to right. disempower uh, chaos, the little bit of chaos that we're trying to sieve in different ways. The essence of the ear to hear, but like the Sunno example, like that flips it on its head where the body becomes the ear and sort of breaks up that Kantian kind of description you just gave a Go little ahead, John, ear sorry. in each organ yeah oh, right. Ooh, nice yeah a like, thousand like, ears the mm. organs are like are onologically secondary like the individual senses are onologically secondary to this sort of primordial rhythm or to the body without organs but experientially they are primary and they have to be sort of pushed aside or reorganized in a way that that allows us to get 
at a little glimpse of what is primary. I'm trying to avoid surface and depth metaphors because those are a problem in Deleuze, but like, but this is this seems to be where he's getting at with Bacon is that Bacon is trying to capture a glimpse of the body in a moment of force, of sort of like when the head is deformed, it's almost as if you're seeing like. You know, like if you watch like a film like Raging Bull and there are those slow motion shots of Robert De Niro getting punched in the face and you right. see the ripple yeah. of the blow cross moving across his body, like those are the right. sort yeah, of yeah, yeah. he's trying to do something similar to that in painting that is not figurative, that's not dependent upon. Dude, stick with this non-figurative, non-representative. I mean, there's what is it? Dulles talks about, and this I think he's quoting directly from Bacon where Bacon is saying he's trying to capture the forces of the scream and not depict the horror mm -hmm. that perhaps causes the scream. So there is not this causality where we see the horror and then the scream is an effect of that. It is, we see the scream as embodied and forced by these invisible forces that are sort of again non-figured they're non-representative it's a it's a bit of what was the quote uh from i think it was from paul clay where it's like not to render the visible but to render visible right so there is this it's not about figuring the horror if you will it keeps it keeps it invisible and therefore a little bit more uh i mean it's interesting because for deleuze it's not about it's not about the the abomination or the horror itself in bacon despite appearances right it's there is something more the horror is not is not depicted it's left in abeyance and there's a kind of fascination I, i'm thinking just as we're talking looking for more sort of workaday examples that might illuminate what bacon is trying to produce on the canvas i'm thinking of this memory when i was a kid i must have been like seven or eight and, and i was in the car with my father and we got stuck in a rubbernecking traffic jam you know, where the car had been pulled over to the side and people were just stopping and looking to see, you know, what it, and I asked my dad, I was like, well, why, why are people stopping? And he said, they want to see what can happen. They want to see what can happen to a body. My father never went to college, but he was totally Spinozist in that moment too. They want to see what a body can do and what can be done to a body. Like the kind of horror of, you know, you think about like cartoons of, characters that are contorted and exploded and get your head through the steering wheel or you know like it's those sorts of contortions of the body that bacon is almost placing a gambit on and saying like you like this don't you and he's trying to kind of draw it and that's the that's the draw of these paintings isn't it like it's like what how contorted can these figures become before they become unrecognizable as figures as what was once Lucian Freud, if that makes sense, or what, or who was once George Dyer? Be interesting yeah, I mean, to almost like bring in a little bit of like Jay, like Ballard's crash in this same yeah. vein, perhaps. Yeah, I know. I'm sure Ballard loves this stuff. I, I have no, yeah. Well, I was kind of thinking about how Deleuze makes a formula for it where it's that there's always going to be some sort of figuration, but it is sort of turned against itself through these different strategies, whether it be scrubbing, the blurring, the asignifying traits and marks and brushes, as John said, that go into the texture of, of the, the painting that you can see when you're in front of it. You're sort of 
forcing back into the primary figuration these these aspects without resemblance right this is how does he he says um bacon he quotes bacon saying create resemblance but through accidental and non-resembling means i thought that that was a kind of interesting way of you know because it's the same with a writer i mean just to try to I already made the analogy between the blank page and the blank canvas, which is already for Deleuze virtually swarming with these, these cliches and, and, and the struggle against cliche becomes a cliche, blah, blah, blah. But I think the interesting thing is we are always sort of stratified, right? There's always just to use a thousand plateaus language. There's always going to be a bit of figuration subsisting. There's always going to be a bit of signification subsisting. And you can get caught up in merely struggling against that, thereby reproducing new formations of imprisonment. Or, you know, as kind of Deleuze in these first chapters, he's really kind of making clear that Bacon has a method that does come with playing off the, the field and the pedestal and the imprisonment, the encasement mm -hmm. and sort of forcing them to interact in ways that are localized because, and this is where Deleuze goes into Bacon's preferences for, or that there's ways of struggling against representation that could lead us into abstract art. Mm -hmm. But I think for, for Bacon, that becomes kind of a mess. I think is the literal word that, that, mm -hmm. that Bacon uses it, it, en it encapsulates the whole in a way that loses the diagrammatic effect, mm -hmm. which would be this play of chance in randomness and the non-resembling means and whatnot. So I do think that it's interesting thinking when we look at a number of Bacon's paintings, there are these, let's call them like, I don't want to call them tricks, but there are these tactics, right, of, of situating. Yeah. You started to go into it with this, where's the field of color going to sort of build the contour versus the, yeah. the deformation that's happening in this space. They're strategies. Yeah, like, like they are no less than, say, you know, the development of Renaissance perspective. They are strategies for rendering right. something, um, except what you're trying to render is not a representation of the world. What you're trying to render is a sensation. Like these are, so I'm trying to reconstruct the chapter about this. So there's a, I believe it's chapter 14 or 17, where he talks about after representation, there are a few paths forward. There's Mondrian's path, which is the path of the eye, right. the EYE purely, which is radical abstraction, absolute abstraction, squares and colors on a canvas. There's Pollock's path, which is the path of the hand purely, which is wherein the referent of the painting, if there is any, is simply the artist's act of throwing the paint onto the canvas. And he says that that Pollock's painting is a kind of it's purely handed in a way that it can't this is one thing i wasn't not able to figure out like what does he find like why doesn't he like pollock it's too deterritorialized de maybe i mean there might be a little bit of biographical stuff going on just that you know pollock died because he was an alcoholic and he was in a car crash like that right don't destratify like, too quickly right exactly right and i mean like these are there's a certain heroism to pollock Indulas, and I think to, to the French more broadly, they sort of see him as a kind of American, a hero of America who is struck down. <laughs> Interesting, yeah. But Bacon for Deleuze finds this path. In a way, it's like, this just occurred to me now, but it's between France and America, right? What's mm. 
where's the middle ground? It's well, it's Iceland, but actually, but really it's it's England, right? He's right, he's in the middle of the French idealism and the American handedness, which is also a point that he brings up in the um that Deleuze brings up in the American literature essay, that there's there's the French novel of psychology and the American novel of the frontier. And they're sort of these radically opposed aesthetics. And England's right in the middle. And Bacon, for him, he maintains, and he spends years sort of stumbling around figuring this out. He maintains a bare minimum of figuration that allows the diagram, the chance elements to achieve a certain kind of discreteness yeah. and force within the painting that allows them to appear as deforming as yeah. opposed to in Pollock where there's a certain if you ever look at um like have you guys seen a Pollock in person the big Pollocks there's this almost like geometrical balance to them they feel like they are these sort of swirls of chaos but they're at the same time your eye is led to everywhere equally they're perfectly rhizomatic and in a way where the differences don't make a difference anymore as right, opposed whereas in bacon the differences always do make a difference each of these sort of asignifying marks are very distinctly and effectively placed like i don't mean like as an that is a um assessment like oh he did a good i mean like they are e they have effects each one has its own effect and transmits you from one level to another right the painting that's true the levels in sensation that i think deleuze takes straight from bacon's interviews where the abstract painting whether it be pollock or whatnot doesn't transfer us from these different levels and mm -hmm. then so that in that way actually is more like a photograph ironically mm -hmm. um than than like what Deleuze sees in Bacon. And I do think that it's, it's interesting just because you mentioned the chaos that, so to speak, appears throughout the uh, an abstract painting like, like a Pollock, where, you know, for Deleuze and Guattari and what is philosophy, they say it's not that chaos doesn't have determinations, is that they immediately disappear when they appear right so mm -hmm. i think that's the interesting thing where you said the differences don't make a difference i think that's just another mm -hmm. way of rephrasing what what you said where there are infinite determinations and therefore at a certain point you could say no determinations but they just they disappear as they appear without leaving us with a way to sieve out these differences that's a part of it too i mean that i think that that again shows that's one of the the ways of struggling against the representative figurative the common problem right it captures forces but releases them at this at the moment of, of capture so i think that that's perhaps where there is a tendency to offset bacon from these other movements in art yeah, it seizes them but releases them at the moment of capture. That's exactly, and it's that moment of release, or rather, because even that would constitute a narrative moment. But it's that moment where you can't tell if they're being seized. Are they being seized or released at this time? Like, is the figure, like the seated figures, like is Lucian Freud crossing his legs or uncrossing them? Mm, yeah. Is and like those are questions immediately prompted by the triptych form that doesn't offer any answers. Like the work you look at a Pollock, you don't have questions. I mean, I love Pollock. Like, there's something that almost, like, Rothko, too. There's something almost sort of, like, 
quieting or silencing about the work in its finality, in its sort of self-completeness, whereas Bacon prompts a question to then deliver you into a realm of undecidability. You know, he prompts a question and then cancels it. And you're right. sort of thrown into that oscillating point as opposed to the sort of almost like monistic calm of the expressionists. Not de Kooning, but at least Rothko and, um, and Pollock. I have a question for you guys. How would you describe Bacon's relation or Deleuze's relation to Bacon within this book? Because me and Taylor talked about this yesterday. But for me, Deleuze does this thing often where he'll start over the course of the book to get cloaked to almost sock puppet his subject. He'll sort of speak. By the end of the Nietzsche book, he really is writing like Nietzsche. And it's a sort of a stylistic and it's a persona taking. Whereas in this book, there is re there is a respectful distance. I sense like he never pretends to speak for Bacon or as Bacon or to demonstrate Bacon to you. And that to me is, it speaks to how Deleuze is trying to work out after A Thousand Plateaus, the relationship between philosophy and art and what the, rela the proper relationship of the philosopher and the artist is. Right. any good encounter and i just i'm trying to articulate that to myself what's what's the relationship between the affect and the concept right <laughs> nice. good question there it is i mean i mean i, mean, I do think that that's that's why that's why deleuze yeah. will not parrot he's not going to start writing like proust mm -hmm. right he's he's going to evoke he's going to dramatize for the one hand proust's struggle against the philosophers of of yore right because mm -hmm. It's it's the fact that, you know, philosophy is an enemy for Proust only because it doesn't have the claws of necessity, as he says. Right. So this is where the realm of art takes on a certain precedence, even if, you know, for Deleuze and Guattari, he wants to referee and say philosophy, art, science, they all think, despite what certain thinkers may have said. And the artist is a thinker. Right. I think that but the artist isn't necessarily mobilizing concepts, nor is that necessarily their role, even if they can expound upon their art or other art and develop concepts, which then they would be philosophizing. But when they are producing art, that mm -hmm. is not their main, their main goal. That is not their, their purview. So I do think that on that level, there is no way in which to puppet Proust, to puppet Bacon, right? There is a way in which Deleuze is, is going to be, and that's the respectful distance that you're talking about, mm -hmm. is that Deleuze is going on to terrain that Bacon has hinted at in the interviews, which is why Deleuze will say, like, you can tell when, when, when Bacon talks about chance, he's not really being understood by, it may be Sylvester that mm -hmm. did the interviews with him. He may be referring to that volume, which in yeah, reality is, yeah. of fact, I haven't, I haven't read it, but yeah, I, he is referring to it. Yeah. I saw Deleuze's comments on them and, and, you know, Deleuze is like, it, it's kind of like um, the discussions between Arto and Riviere. There is this gulf that can't be bridged where they're not, they're not even like maybe speaking the same language. Um, it's, because I, yeah. you know, Bacon is trying, what's that? What's the Deleuze quote where he says, like, when I when I hear someone say discussion, I reach for my gun. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to discuss his terrorism. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that, yeah. you know, for Deleuze, when 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 Bacon is discussing and it becomes in Deleuze chance choice, right, because it is a kind of 
a chance that is seized upon and therefore not random. It's not probabilistic. And it's also not necessarily, even if there is a know-how in the craft of bacon, there's not a, there's not necessarily a, a route directly to the goal that there is not a conception of the finished product in mind as the process is going on, which would then liken him somewhat to Pollock, right? One could say that it's the randomness that is itself chosen. But I do think that at a certain point, there is a difference there where the randomness isn't conceded to the whole, right? There is, you know, create resemblance, but through non-resembling means, as Bacon says, right? So there is a sense in which chaos is not the primary goal or the movement of the artist's strokes and non-strokes and different techniques isn't the main movement in the the paintings but in any case Deleuze is not necessarily trying to you know articulate affect through affect because then he would be making art right he's trying to articulate the conceptual aspects of the affects and percepts that are being mobilized by mm -hmm. by Bacon. And so that's why, why they remain on fundamentally different uh, terrain and why it isn't necessarily, as you kind of mentioned before we started re recording, that it's not essentially the same type of immaculate conception, the same type of buggery that's going on. You know, there isn't necessarily, one could say maybe not even a buggery in any strict sense in which we can see that he attempts with Hume and mm -hmm. you know what he said he tried to take Nietzsche from behind and Nietzsche took him from behind which I think mm -hmm. is what you're getting at with the end of Nietzschean philosophy where Deleuze may be writing in yeah. this Nietzschean style and maybe the, being the one being taken from behind or he, he tried to take Spinoza from behind and Spinoza politely resisted or some shit right <laughs> so we can see that you know Deleuze's bacon isn't necessarily already a bacon in the sense in which bacon was not a philosopher, mm -hmm. not in any concrete sense. So if there is a buggery, it is much more on a domain that would deal with a virtual bacon. Because mm -hmm. all, all, all I mean, all he has is some of those interviews and a little bit of the writings, but it's again, Bacon isn't necessarily performing the role of philosopher there, right? So a philosopher has to be constructed out of what we have in not just in terms of the visual domain, but some of the, the disparate writings. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's that philosopher that is fashioned out of this, this movement that Deleuze is trying to create that then one could say there is no original, quote unquote, right? The copy model is, is totally broken because I do think that's one of the interesting things about the, the, the buggery thing, which Deleuze is famous for, is that it assumes there is a, a kind of model that one is copying, but then breaking with and then simulacre rain. Like but the cliches no, you talked about in the... Right, right, like the, right. Like the cliches. So there, but, but there isn't a pre-existing Bacon philosopher that would be modeled right. Right. to then break with and make simulacre rain. You have... It, so the simulacre have to be constructed out of nowhere or or... Or it seems like this is why he's talking about these other paths that art could take to break the figuration. There are these other models, but then somehow Bacon stands in as the reign of simulacra or whatnot. So I think that that's where the fundamental difference would lie for me. And these are problems. These are strategies that Bacon is developing to solve problems that are particular to painting, but nonetheless have analogies across domains that nonetheless like Deleuze will say that painting has been ahead of philosophy for the past hundred years. Like they've, they've had a, you know, been 30 years up on us. Every development we have is 
foreseen by them, even though he stands by the sort of radical separation of the domains, almost as if they're like Spinozist um, attributes, attributes, right? That they sort of like they fall completely separately. They are absolutely discrete. But nonetheless, they braid together like a kind of double helix. Right. And those, there are these moments where they just touch, where a little bit of affect creeps into philosophy and a little bit of philosophy creeps into affect. I think that that's, that's an interesting point. I guess I was, I was thinking about um, in the Abbasidaire, Deleuze is, is talking about, he makes an analogy between painting the painters and philosophers, where I know he talks about more than just Van Gogh, but Van Gogh is one of the main ones. Right. And he talks about him in this book too, but Van Gogh is one of the main ones where he kind of, he talks about Van Gogh's, not timidity, but hesitance to use color and that Van Gogh had to, you really had to prepare and practice and mm. perfect your craft before venturing into color. You don't just jump in and start throwing colors around like a kid with with a with a new crayon box in the same way that the philosopher doesn't necessarily just jump in and create concepts willy-nilly right it is related to a problem it is related to a selection process that isn't it's not just creating concepts for the fun of it and i think in the same way as we can see with with Bacon and and any perhaps any artist development, there is a way. Like for example, Cezanne, right? That he's mm -hmm. always coming back to, and he even quotes D. H. Lawrence on Cezanne and this struggle with the appleiness of the apple and and creating something more alive and intense than Plato's ideas. Blah blah blah. I think there's something similar with what Deleuze is making an analogy between the craft of painting and the craft, if you will, if we can use that analogy of philosophy. And so in each one, and not to get Heideggerian, but if each one is creative, which I think Deleuze agrees with, mm -hmm. if philosophy is creation of concepts, science is creation of functions, and 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 art is creation of percepts and and affects. There is a sense in which each involves a craft, a kind of poesis that has to be practiced, learned, attempted, and it has to ha take some sort of domain that forces us to think, that forces a problem on us. Otherwise, it's, it's mere masturbation. These domains have to meet. They have to sort of circle each other like dogs in a ring, right? They have to meet carefully. There's a Bacon quote. I'm not sure if it's in here, but I think I know, I know it's in the interviews where he says like, you know, painting is not war. War is war. I come back to that whenever I get a little too self-serious. Painting is not violence. Violence is violence, mm -hmm. you know, and that there's a a defense of the, an ethical defense, you know, as much as we can say that Bacon has an ethics, like of that distinction or rather like a demand that we approach it gingerly or with thought, like the way that Deleuze slowly wades into the world of Bacon's system and of his, and of his affects, like to begin with, first there is the figure. You can almost see like over the course of the chapters, him looking, you can imagine him, I'm going to read this book every day. I'm going to look through all these prints every day and every day I'm going to think of a new I'm going to write a new chapter. Like it's this kind of return and retreat and return and retreat that as a model of like, not just of 
thinking, but of criticism of like as a model of aesthetic labor, it's incredibly appealing to me, you know, it's a, and it's incredibly, you know, it's a guidebook for bacon. It's a, it's a series of commentaries on bacon and it's a model for how to make such an encounter yourself, which I think Deleuze would, you know, endorse. If anything, maybe that's why he's not sock puppeting bacon, because if anything, he's not trying to get too close. He's worried about what'll happen. Can you imagine like a one of these bacon portraits of Deleuze? I think that would be like, you know, sitting in the in the in the apartment or something or on the on the dais. We never got it. They should have become friends and then Deleuze could have uh could have been one of his, his subjects, right? That's he missed that opportunity. Is it too banal to just discuss the he does bring up the development of photography as placing painting or painters in a new sort of a new problematics, mm -hmm. right? To have to how does one paint whenever the sort of primary function, right? The function of painting, almost like the organ becomes displaced in its sort of transcendental mode. Because once we can faithfully, we'll say that in quotes perhaps, recreate the subject of our, through portraiture or whatever, to the photograph, what sort of problematic, what are the sort of effects of that problematic on painting as a form of art that demands new techniques, that demands new, I don't know, some, some it's new conceptual like apparatus to be applied? Why does painting persist as a mode of art? after the photograph what is that about per se the loose brings this up to to dismiss it right that the photograph would have supplanted paintings representative role which would have reigned in the in the time of the great religious sentiments right, um, yeah. but, but the loose brings that up to to immediately like dismiss it right that painting has never necessarily been about the figurative right yeah so and that there were aspects of the figural in el greco in Roman right. art, etc. Yeah, right. Aspects of the figural, as opposed to the figurative. So I do think that it's a false problem for Deleuze that he brings up in order to sort of help to reestablish this notion that photography for him is not necessarily an art, or at least if it is an art, even its role is not to figure, to narrate, to illustrate, at least if we consider it an art. I think that this is one of Deleuze's ambiguities and why he's also a bit ambiguous about cinema at times where he has to work through Bergson to dismiss some of Bergson's own ways yeah. of thinking of the movement yeah. image, et cetera. But, yeah, right. you know, you're right. Uh, what, what are the, what are the two, it wasn't just El Greco though. It was Giotto's stigmatization of, yeah. Of St. Francis, yeah, Giotto's with um, Christ as an airplane. Over yeah, he's like, he's like a kite, right? Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The stigmata are the, are the lines tethering yeah. uh, Jesus in the sky to... Oh, and then there was another one. I don't know if it was Tintoretto, but it was the... Um, it was the creation of the animals, right? Where... Yeah. Or Where Delicious. God is uh, shooting the starting gun. Right. God yeah. is... Yeah. It is, it is interesting, this question of atheism what does Deleuze say he I mean this is something that he's not the only thing to have done this but it's it's not that with the absence of God everything is permitted it's the other way around right there's mm -hmm. somehow and he doesn't really go into this too much but it's somehow with if 
art is now an atheist game, right? So to speak, with the doubt, with the death of God, or what you whatever you call it, is it is as though there isn't this freeing domain where one could have taken on the codifications of dogma and doctrine and and then done whatever one wanted to as long as the as the uh, as long as you tick the boxes of having religious imagery then you can do whatever you want as almost as like with the atheist game now being the domain of art it's as though there are more rules rather than less the Liz doesn't really go into this too much but i do think that he's trying to go with something of what coop was talking about where figuration has to be as we've been saying dealt with very delicately even if a modicum of it subsists what is the role of, say, something that Deleuze doesn't really talk about, but what is the role of, say, something like photorealism in art? Again, is it is it to try to depict better than, than a photographic lens the quote-unquote reality of being in the world? Or is there something perhaps in the hyper-realism of the resemblance, something surreal, non-real, non-resembling? Where is that? That's not really a question that Deleuze brings up but it is a question that i have like because coop brought it up i think very nicely like if painting is not to compete with the photograph which i think is a false problem for deleuze what about a type of painting like photorealism i think deleuze would say that like the photograph sort of sets painting free Mm -hmm. and fronts it with the vertigo of its own freedom in the sense that painting no like photography has taken over the role of representing a figuration. Yeah. It has taken over more or less the role of representing the world as we experience it, uh, representing the visual. Painting now has to look back to itself and figure out what it will do. This is the problem that Bacon is still trying to do. Yeah, this is the problem. One of Bacon's problems, right, is how and what painting will do, I mean, painting with like a capital P almost in the sort of impersonal sense of the progression or the development of painting as a discourse or as a, I guess, a discourse. But what it will do is it will return to, it will return to its essence, but through the back door. There's a line in chapter 14 where modern painting begins when man no longer experiences himself as an essence, but as an accident. It's this painting will rediscover its fundamental delinkage from the real, its non-representational aspect, which it originally had in the Egyptians. This is why Bacon proclaims the superiority of Egyptian art, because it is the painting of pure essences, right? Which is just, that's fucking awesome. That's so cool. But like, you know, but then he'll go on to say, today we have painting that returns to essences, but it's the essence as the, as an accident, as a hexaity in the Deleuzean, as, as a singularity. I mean, Deleuze does this in um, Difference of Repetition, right? Where it's, it's the inessentiality of, say, the differential calculus, as shown in the infinitesimal, for example, that thereby creates the essences, rather than starting with, with the molar essences and then worrying about which every little bit of hair and mud and whatever has its idea like in the platonic forms, it's the inessentialities that constitute the essences. So as you said, hexaity, pre-individual singularity. Vis-a-vis the um, photorealism thing, I think that Deleuze would actually 
say that photorealism is the other side of Pollock. It's mm -hmm. that because what is being depicted in photorealism, the referent of it is the artist's hand in the exact same way, except instead of standing back and witnessing the textures and stuff, you're standing close and looking for the brush strokes. And you're it that it's a kind of it's a sad passion almost. <laughs> like it's a sort of a sad right. attempt at aspiring to rather than taking up the mantle of abandoning representation and going off on your line of flight into the figural it's a retreat and a like a, aspiring to the condition of photography which i think Deleuze would have nothing but contempt for but probably that's just me it, i think it's i think it's yeah. probable that you're right yeah. it's trying to outdo technology at its own game which then becomes a question of mastery technical skill taken to the point where it substitutes itself for the regime of, of art and its creation of apex and percepts. I don't know if, if, if that completely dismisses it as a means, but it seems to, I think for Deleuze, and again, this is a problem where we start to delimit what is art from non-art. And this is why I don't necessarily agree with, with Zebke where, or with Deleuze, where he seems to dismiss photography as an art form. He seems to like leave that question ambivalently. Mm -hmm. And um, I do think that there are means of art and photography, but I do agree with Deleuze that they wouldn't necessarily be about representing. There would be something where they would have to rise above that. And so, yeah. That's 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 the paradox of of hyper realism, and I guess that we would need to bring in Baudrillard to like to mm -hmm. maybe do some sort of play on on the the hyper real of the of the photorealistic genre of of painting being, you know, telling us something about our our mm -hmm. cybernetic selves and blah blah blah. <laughs> right. What, I mean, what, I, don't, I don't fucking. What's know. the difference? Here's a question. What's the difference to you between like a photorealist painter and a method actor? They seem to be partaking in the same ideal in a way, say like a, a real a method realist performance. Right. Where when you're watching something like Raging Bull, this I don't know why I came back to that, but like it's sure. it's one of those performances where the actor dissolves into the role. But at the same time, De Niro is so good in that film that he like ruins it because all you can do is stare at De Niro and watch him watch how good he is at acting to the point that it becomes an exercise in appreciation rather than an experience of affects. But as you said, the, the cinema isn't reduced just to the, just to one actor or just. To oh, one no, no, role. no. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm talking about like a, in a very isolated way that sure. like demonstration of skill that dissolves the being an appearance distinction or, or is attempting to. I do think it's interesting to think about, especially towards the end of the film, where there is almost a Baconian aspect of of his the deformation of his face, where yeah. it is it is the kind of lump of flesh. But I don't have an answer for you about about method acting and, and photorealism. I think there's something interesting in that analogy. I mean, there's a certain representational aspect that I think is the kernel of what you're trying to get mm -hmm. at, but I really couldn't articulate beyond that. I would just throw up where do we think something like pointillism would fall into this? Because I feel like it kind of sounds like from what you guys are saying, I would almost describe Pollock's work as like this deterritorialized form 
of a pointillism, like taking pointillism beyond itself into something further, but I don't know, because then it, you get into yeah. the interplay between distance and the actual technique itself. And doesn't it take the hyper again, it's not photorealism, but, but if, if part of the Renaissance, despite what Deleuze may say or think, if part of it was still representative and not yet getting to the sub-representative elements. There's a sense in which the brushstroke had to be eliminated. The actual activity of the artist is eliminated beyond, behind representing a scene or figuring a scene or narrating a scene, whereas quantalism takes that to the extreme where now the brushstroke is dissolved and deterritorialized into the multiplicity of, Ooh, that's of good. points to where the brush... Mm -hmm. The brush is no longer an apparatus or, or, or has been defeated. It's one way of defeating this move of hiding the stroke. The stroke is, is gone away with, with the technical means itself. And so I think that that is, a, that is a, a performance of technical mastery and prowess since we can, you know, there is a way in which obviously there's still a representative element to it, but there is the sub-representative that kind of calls beneath this is why yeah. that scene in like um, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, right, where <laughs> you kind of get, you keep getting zoomed in. You can get, you can zoom into the molecular and and get threatened with um with the consistency of one's reality, right? It, it can become psychotic. I mean, this is part of the way that that the psychosis is described, right? Is the is being kind of, for example, like the the pores in the skin as being like a field of of little vaginas or something, right? There is a swarming of differences beneath the the sort of molar surface that can threaten the consistency of of reality. That's obviously not like a Lacanian way of talking about it because that's about foreclosure and whatnot. But in in Anti Oedipus, they describe psychosis in this way: you losing the face, for example, is one aspect of psychosis. No longer representing the face, you lose. You dismantle the white wall black hole system. The signifier is destratified in a way that I think for them is different from the type of creative semiosis they see in schizophrenia. It's not unrelated. It's just that there is a way in which one can then dismantle the face, but be subsumed by a semiotic black hole. That's where you get the catatonic, yeah. the, the psychotic. In a way, then, is this book a kind of, Maybe the closest pair it would have then would be to the Masak book. I think perversion so. and hysteria as lines of flight from schizophrenia, or as sort of way stations on the way to it, or as strategic positions to take up to avoid, you know, absolute deterritorialization that gets problem right. that gets problematized so radically in a line of flight from neurosis at the very least. Yeah. Like that, like hysteria, at least in the sense that he's developing here, and perversion are not the Oedipal neuroses, and that they are in some ways like heroic positions to occupy without yeah. falling into the black hole. And also, I mean, I do think that it's this because he brings up this question of a clinical aesthetic, we get this question of the clinical, which obviously, as you mentioned earlier, that's how Deleuze kind of ends his career with essays clinical and critical, but there's this question of what is the role on this non-analytic role of a clinic? What is the clinical aspect of art? And I think this too goes back to his allegiance to Nietzsche, this question of a diagnosis of culture, this question of, of a 
a way of breaking with the sort of doctor patient type of binary wherein the you know wherein the artist himself is not just a, a diagnoser of culture but a but a part of that culture and therefore also a patient where there is this that distinction breaks down and yet it is about what vitality if we want it is about intensifying life in a way that avoids absolute deterritorialization or catatonia or whatnot this way of um, intensifying life for the sake of of life and not re-stratifying ourselves to accord with a status quo or normal neurosis whatnot which we may sometimes see in freud's worst moments right where we're trying to adapt people to a uh to a type of patriarchy, a type of civilization wherein they their symptoms would at least be mollified so they can function. But I think that that's where the analytic machine and the artistic machine and the revolutionary machine, as Liz and Guattari talk about it all throughout their joint work, even in what is philosophy, right? When they talk about the people to come and that if art can kind of capture the infinite in, in the finite, blah, 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 they don't necessarily summon the people which is a part of the revolutionary machine but they can they can summon conditions for mm. making possible the reality of revolution that they see so i see i think that that's the clinical aspect of the masok book the bacon book and um, getting it all to sort of run together i mean this is why i think Deleuze and guattari are a little bit modest and maybe polemical when they say, is it our fault if artists understand artists and writers understand schizophrenia better than the analysts? But I think that that's just an ancillary thing to the fact that the artistic machine is the art machine is, is essential to to moving the motors of the revolutionary machine. And I think for Guattari, the analytic machine, if it loses the revolutionary aspect, you're back into a kind of standardization that yeah. capitalism would that you're just you're just trying to smooth the wheels of capital right if you lose the um the artistic machine then you actually lose the vectors that can dislodge people from their most overwhelming whether it be catatonia or just a kind of dead repetition this is where guattari sees swan and proust's novel right failing at becoming artists, the failure of art and the failure of love dooms him to a kind of repetition that uh, gets overcome by the narrator by chance of an asignifying refrain. It just occurred to me that 81, this is the same year as Lacan's seminar on Joyce on the same uh, yeah, that's seminar right. 23, which is all about art as the last defense against total schizophrenia. It's the mm. kind of radical loss of world, right? Like Joyce embraces his santom, which is what compels him to write and to continue to find these sort of endless ambiguities and puns. Would that we all had such a <laughs> such a useful santom, but but I mean that that's Coop posting on Twitter, right? So yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> as you were talking about, you know, the clinic, like I was thinking of Laborde and the mm -hmm. fake yeah. story of Villas going to Laborde and being like. This is weird. I don't like it here. You guys scare me. Felix, please keep your weird patients away from me. There's something about like looking for... Typical philosopher, right? 
Yeah, really. And I mean, like, I don't think I would have a good time at Laborde either. Like, hey, hey, I'm, I'm not. Yeah, like, yeah, let's, no, let's but not, let's not judge too quickly. What I think is interesting is that he but he loves the idea of Laborde and he loves the sort of like the little I mean, in the same way that Negri talks about little islands of communism everywhere, RIP to the real one. You get this sense that he's looking for when I hear the clinic in Deleuze, I can't not think of of Laborde and of Guadar yeah. and of the Guadarian clinic as a kind of anti and anti-psychiatry as this producing these little islands of something with room to maneuver, I guess would be the way to call it, where like people have just a little bit more room to maneuver. Islands of transversality, maybe is what Guattari would say, right? You know, the islands of uh, capturing a little bit of that dehierarchization, a little bit of that that anarchy that that keeps people more mobile and more free and and not not stuck in a rut of doing the same fucking thing, right? I think that's part of the grid yeah. and, and, and the and different, Yeah, and the lines of flight. The wander lines, yeah. I do think that, you know, part of uh, Deleuze might say, and this, this is just, again, go back to Nietzsche and the way that Nietzsche talks about constitutional types. And he talks about his own constitutional. He doesn't like to travel much, right? He kind of likes to stay in the same place, do the same things. He has a routine. You know, part of his health is is a factor in that. I mean, I literally, I think that Deleuze did not have the constitutional type of health, mm -hmm. no offense to him, to to do what Guattari did at Laborde. It it took a different, and it's a part of personality, but I do think it's a part of of good health to be able to throw yourself into that type of of situation every day without losing one's resilience and commitment and resolution there's a quick way to dismiss Deleuze as, as ableist and just say like he doesn't like crazy people and that might be partly true i do think it does also come down to this question of um of one's constitution you know again nietzsche's thinking about his ideal society where people are assigned roles and positions and and jobs so to speak that produce the least amount of suffering and it depends on the constitutional type and this is not to say that he's still thinking about organizing this hypothetical utopia around the exploitation of labor or whatnot right but that there would be you know types who flourish in manual labor whereas obviously there's artists there's scientists there's thinkers who may not flourish in that same milieu given the same circumstances it all depends obviously on the forces under which one is individuated but i think that's part of the um nietzsche's utopian idea which he doesn't really write about much but it's like an offhand passage maybe from earlier works like human all to human something uh -huh. like this where he almost sounds a little sentimental where he's thinking about his own constitutional type and where he probably with after suffering um the the horse injury in the the Franco-Prussian War, I think that's what it was, right? He's not really able to, his body is not really functioning in such a way that he could perform much manual labor. Even, he has to even quit teaching by the time he's in his, his 30s, right? Because of his health. So he's he's thinking very consciously about this wound he was born for, to quote Bosquet. I don't know. So each his abilities and so forth. Mm -hmm. <laughs> in the morning, farm in the afternoon, write <laughs> criticism at night. No, I mean, like, I think that that, if there is, if there is a communism to do in Deleuze that can be reconstructed, I think it it really does boil down to that, like to each to each his flourishing. Yeah, <laughs> I like his, that. To each his symptom.
and the heroes in Deleuze are the, are the ones who commit fully to what I guess you could call their symptom, like the sort of the heroes of thought for him and of aesthetics, like Proust, Proust in his cork-lined room, Bacon with his suffering and his endless reiterations, you know, Massac in his journals and his, like there's these... Bartleby's refusal. Exactly. Like there are these figures of like sort of obstinate commitment to your symptom or what Lacan would call your symptom or what Deleuze would call like your line of flight or like, or what your symptom is revealed to be a line of flight. I was just thinking, this will be my last comment, I think, about hysteria and hysteresis. So it's it's literally like, if you combine those two, it's, it's, it's later and birth, right? Or later and womb. Yeah. So like in a sense, like what the pun is, has something to do with the afterbirth. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The womb that it comes, which is, and the afterbirth is Lacan's figure of the libido. It's this sort of like the organ that we lose at our birth that is separated from us. The sort right. of lost wholeness is figured for him in the egg of the afterbirth. And like finding your little ways back into that feels like the point of contact. You know, that there's something that, you know, everywhere that is home to me has something is something like a womb, um, even though not in a resemblance type way, <laughs> like in a by non resemblance. There's um and that goes back to flourishing. That goes back to the the egg undergoing forces that would be impossible for an individuated being, undergoing torsions and tensions and deformations, like in Bacon's paintings, that would crush and rend an individuated being. So there is this sense in which, obviously, Dulles talks about it in terms of body without organs, but there is a sense in which, you know, there is... Bacon is playing with the forces of individuation in a way that might be impossible for for normal bodies to undergo. And I think that's part of the the horror of the flesh, right? The the suffering of the flesh that is supposedly depicted, that forced movement that somehow rends the flesh and yet leaves it intact. It's part of the the movement of the the artist exiting the canvas the body vomiting itself out through one of its organs. John, we could give you a chance to uh, to hype up sort of what you're working on at the moment. Could be uh, finishing a dissertation. It could be uh, potential. You said you, you've always had this desire to become an aspiring writer. You could be writing something creative at the moment. Anything you'd like to plug or any other kind of shout out you'd like to make, we'll give you the uh, the last word. Thanks, guys. No, I've got nothing to plug. I have to finish a dissertation in the next six months. So okay. I've been up in the morning, type, 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 type. It's going to get done. But after that's done, we'll see where I end up. If I get a VAP or if I find a real person job, who knows? But my partner and I, my fiance now and I, we just got engaged. Yeah, yeah. Our, Congrats. Um, thanks. Yeah, no, we are um, working hand in hand, more or less on a kind of dystopian crime novel that, you know, with any luck will be done in seven years. So keep an eye out. All right. That sounds great. Yeah. yeah I'll have to um, get with you maybe this coming week, maybe next weekend, just to see if you've got any comments for my, my translation that I got to turn in here soon. The, oh, the Simondon? Yeah. This, the, uh, the Simondon. I got I to gotta do that. Uh, I got to turn that in. Hopefully, I'm going to turn that in before the end of the year. So maybe we could just uh, spend a an hour or two going over anything that that you see, any any comments you got for me, because you were very helpful with the the Chernyovsky, which I appreciate. Yeah. 
I know that you're since you're finishing the dissertation, I don't want to take to take up too much of your time, but I do. No, 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 it's not that. Like I, I think I, I left about 150 pages of comments in a Google Doc, and okay. I've got a bunch of others that are sitting in a different document in my home computers. I downloaded it because Google Doc. So I will get you the more comments. Yes. Awesome. I want to thank you for being willing to participate. It seemed like when you tweeted about this book, there was a lot of interest, and I think that that just kind of goes to show you never know what um you know what the what's interesting but it's it's one of those books that, that coops wanted to do for for a good long time now and so i'm really happy with what we we did today and the off ramps that we took to to discuss some of these things it gave a gave a lot of food for thought obviously we didn't exhaust all of the work but i think we we, we did a good job kind of maybe hyping up some of these topics and uh again just Thanks for your time. And we'll be talking soon. This episode probably will release what next week end. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. yeah so. Awesome. Thanks guys. This is super fun. Totally honored. Love you guys. I, I genuinely listen to this show like religiously. So oh, like it's man. a huge, massively appreciated to be on. So. Well, I, we appreciate you, John. I uh, had a lot of fun. Love you too, buddy. And uh, we're going to let you go. We'll, we're going to stay on just to plan for next episode because I know we got Christmas coming up and other things. So we will let you sign off, my friend. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Thanks again to John Rapetti for joining Taylor and I on this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Chair and Taylor Atkins. See you all next week. The very rules of eating, of negativity and Including the ultimate form of security, which is